Welcome to Pace Performance Bite Size. The clips in this episode are taken from episode 204 with James Wilde, where he dives into how we can train team sport athletes for speed and how that differs to if we were training speed for sprinters. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy. Now, Rock Daisy are an AMS based off the east coast of the US and they offered the world's only free AMS and I think back to my time in academy football where I had zero budget but I wanted to collect RPEs and wellness and have it digitally versus on a whiteboard and Rock Daisy can offer that with AMS Lite. Nice. So we'll probably come on, well, we'll come on to the recent publication um, that's just come out as well as your the book chapter that you've done for Anthony Turner's book. But first off, first off, and probably a massively um, huge question I'm going to ask you, but approach mm-hmm. to training in terms of speed for sprinters versus team sports. And we'll probably go on team sports first, and the, the sprinters will come on to the, the recent article. But approach to, to training speed for team sports, and I guess that links in with your with your role at lacrosse and, um, and Harlequin. So it'd be good to get a bit of an overview of that, and we can dive a little bit deeper. Cool. All right. Um, well, I, I guess we, we all know, right, that sprint performance is determined by optimizing our ground reaction force characteristics. Um, but the problem is, is that that ground reaction force production during stances is, is pretty complex and it's influenced by multiple physical qualities, coordination and, and, and skill. And, and whilst the kind of more general SNC programs that, that might focus predominantly on fundamental strength qualities will, in most cases, have good benefit. There, there are a, a heap of other kind of approaches and perhaps a little bit more of an individualized approach that can be taken to impact team athletes' um, sprint performance. And this is especially true as the positive effects of a more general strength program diminishes as the athlete's um, grows in terms of their, their training age and level of ex- expertise and, and their strength levels. So I, I think there's more, uh, probably more scope within a team sport setting to in, in impact on an on a, on a, uh, athlete's speed compared to um, obviously a sprinter who, you know, that that's all they're training for. So I think it's a little bit more untapped, if, if, if you like. And whilst there are, you know, numerous things that I'm going to consider to help me build a picture of each athlete of what might be necessary to help enhance their sprinting performance. I think there are probably four main areas that I'm most concerned with to help me build up that profile of that athlete. So they would be things such as, right, what's their current running or sprinting strategy? So how are they sprinting? Um, What's their injury history? What strength-related qualities do they possess or, or, or not? Um, and then also, what what is their actual sprint performance? So, what are their, their split times telling me? Um, so, if I, I'll go, I think I'll go through those areas first of all, and then then I'll go on to how I typically ad- approach addressing some of those um, some of those things that, that I find during that profiling process. So, first of all, what what's their current sprinting you know strategy? So, I'm looking at how they sprint. How do they compare maybe against some of the key technical markers that I'm interested in? But also, how do some of the, um, how can I put it, higher order kinematic variables in terms of their step velocity, step lengths, step rate, contact time, flight time, so how do these variables change um, across the acceleration phase 
Um, how consistent are they at their max velocity? And what is their strategy for, say, achieving fast acceleration? So you can have different ways of, you know, being fast over the first 10 meters. So, for, for example, when considering the, like the initial acceleration phase, so if we are talking about that first 10 meters, so that will probably be achieved in about seven steps. And you'd expect to see that um, so contact times will reduce with each step and the flight times will increase, uh, increase progressively with each step. And during these initial steps, what, what you'll find is that the contact times will remain longer than the flight times. And, and this, this makes sense because we know that we need to generate large amounts of horizontal ground reaction force to produce the horizontal impulse necessary to accelerate in those initial steps. And we can't produce that horizontal ground reaction force whilst in the air. Um, so, you know, it's beneficial to have contact times that are longer than those flight times during acceleration. So, but whilst it's possible to have a, a high impulse by spending a longer time in contact with the ground, the acceleration of the athlete can actually be low if the um, magnitude of the impulse is achieved primarily through spending a longer time generating ground reaction force rather than by generating greater ground reaction force magnitudes, if that makes sense. So in, in such a case like that, you, you know, it might be that shorter contact times are necessary for an individual, um, which would increase the number of steps taken over a given distance so that the, the overall kind of net horizontal impulse produced over that distance might be the, the, the same as someone with a longer push-off, um, but it's just taking them more steps to um, reach that point so that the net impulse might be the same or greater. Then the problem here is that when that becomes too extreme, so is someone you know really chopping their stride and producing really short contacts at, at the start, um, then, as I said earlier, that they're not going to be spending enough time generating that horizontal impulse on the ground. So the ground reaction force vector is likely to be tilted more vertically to get off the floor quicker, resulting in longer flight times and therefore less time available for generating that horizontal impulse. So we've got this constant kind of challenge of optimization for the coach and athlete to, to work with those contact and flight times that might be you know, slightly unique to the individual to, to help improve their acceleration performance. So then we can profile that athlete in terms of their contact and flight time. So typically by looking at um, the ratios of, of one to the other, so we can look at their acceleration strategy. And then we can see how manipulating these over time affect their sprint acceleration performance. And then these variables, amongst others, will then obviously influence their step length and step rate, which determine you know step velocity and so again we can look at them here at their dominance with regards to their step length and step rate and we can look to monitor these and how these variables change over time in response to different training methods and see um, you know whether they are running their fastest when either their step rate is higher or their step length is relatively higher so what what's their preference so to speak and then, you know, it might help you identify some of the training methods you, that, um, for that individual and attempt to manipulate their step length and their step rate and also identify some of the key um, technical markers with regards to body and limb position and how they feed into these high order uh, performance kinematic variables too to help shape maybe some of the cues and tasks set for that athlete. Um, so that, that running strategy and, and how an individual runs it is, I feel, quite an important process to, to help build a picture of an individual. Then um, the, the next thing I'm concerned with is um, so the injury history. 
So is that influencing how they're running their strategy? Um, has a previous issue not really been fully addressed? And are there still some coordination issues with the limb concerned? Have the requisite strength quality levels been properly restored? And, you know, or are there restrictions remaining unresolved? So then it might require a combination of therapy and other methods to address these issues. Um, and another thing to consider is if whether it is not actually possible to change a physical issue um, due to a previous injury. Um, and if this is the case, then you're potentially fighting a, a losing battle trying to alter their sprinting strategy when, um, you know, which may be affected by that, that physical issue. Then uh, moving on to, to the third area that I use to help build my profile for an athlete, which I think most SNC coaches can identify with is um, probably the most, is that the strength qualities that that individual possesses and how that might impact their sprinting ability. Now, there are obviously numerous tests which can be used to measure these qualities. And at the basic um, levels, you know, we might look at some single outcome measures, which we might use um, such as, you know, height or power in a jump, for example. And, and whilst useful to see where an athlete is relative to a set of, say, normative data, they can't always necessarily be used as diagnostic tools to help inform our training. Now, whilst no test is um, obviously without its limitations, there are you know three main assessments I use. I think I, I spoke about before on the previous podcast um, that I use to help give me a broad understanding of the interrelated strength and power issues that might affect an athlete's ability to express force when they're, they're sprinting, um, or they might provide me at least with a reason to explore some other avenues. So that those tests are. Um, a hip extensor torque assessment, which I've taken from um, John Goodwin and amended slightly, a squat jump force velocity profiling method based on that of Pierre Samazino, and an, an in-place like repeated jump assessment ad adapted from that introduced by Damien Harper, where I analyze you know, contact time, jump height, RSI, and, and stiffness as well from there. Um, do, do you want me to go on to talk about those tests now? Or that'd be, yeah, that'd be, that'd be superb. Yeah, just I'd, I'd, yeah, the, cool. starting with the hip extensor talk would be great. Just a bit more detail yep. around that, which I think we touched on before, but it'd be great to get a refresher. Cool. Um, so, yeah, so for the hip extensor talk assessment, I mean, whilst the strength in inverted commas that, that's expressed as ground reaction forces during sprinting represents a collaborative effort of um, you know, muscles crossing the hip, knee, and ankle joints, the hip extensor contribution to um, the horizontal ground reaction force production is is pretty well recognized now, largely born out of the work by J.B. Morin. Um, and in the first few steps, it plays quite a key role in accelerating the, the center of mass forward during that first third of stance, provided the ankle is able to transmit that force effectively to the ground. And so that the hip extensors are also likely to play a key role when we're approaching more of our top end speed in optimizing the amount of horizontal force needed um, during later acceleration, that top end stuff where a more upright um, body position is achieved and, you know, a position that really a lot of team sport athletes would find themselves accelerating in rather than this, you know, deep hanging kind of position from a, a standing block start. Um, and um, as the ground passes underneath the athlete, at the faster rate during the latest stage of acceleration, top end speed, the contribution of those hip extensors to keep producing horizontal ground reaction force while the athlete deals with the more 
spring-like stiffness requirements in higher running velocity is pretty key. So, so the hip extensor torque assessment tells me quite a bit. And, and with the, the geeky MacGyver dov- device that I've set up, I can look at not just the, the peak torque produced, but also the rate of that um, production and or, or the angular impulse. So it helps me to identify whether, you know, we might need to slant the training more towards max force type work or more rate of force type work um, with regards to their hip extensors. Just, then, a couple uh, of, just a couple of questions yeah. off that, James. Yeah, go for um, it. First one, the device that you use, just want to give us a bit of a, more of an explanation on what that looks like yeah. and what that is. So the best way I can explain it is it looks like a, a box um, and on one flat side of, of the box, I've got a um, like a linear bearing system where I've got an old do-in um, lifting shoe with a toe cut off and it's fixed to this system that can just slide up and down the box. So what it means is that um, we have quite good control over that foot position and how it can move and therefore I'm able to much better standardise the um, test being carried out so that I can accurately identify the onset of the force production, um, which is useful when looking at um, more rate type measures. So without that um, box, the peak, the peak force being produced is is reliable, but um, not the, the, the rate of force or, or the angular impulse um, kind of um, metrics I'm looking at. Does that make sense? Thanks for tuning in to Pace Performance Bite Size. So as I mentioned at the start, these clips were taken from episode 204 with James Wilde, which I would highly recommend diving into the full episode, which you can catch on sportsmith.co.